All right. Well, if you will please turn in a copy of God's Word to uh, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. This morning we are reading from verses 17 um, through 38. Hear now the word of the Lord. Um, Let's see, or is it 13? Thank you, 13, 13. Am I preaching on this passage? I can't remember. Uh, 13, Uh, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plot of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus." how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And even as we have heard it read and will soon hear it preached. Uh, Give us ears not just to listen, but to really hear. And eyes not just to take in, but to to really see. And hearts that are receptive to the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray for the unction and anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the preacher and hearer alike. And we ask these things in the strong name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. 
Well, the Lord used the Apostle Paul to plant lots of churches throughout the Roman Empire. We know of three missionary journeys, and it's likely he had a fourth. And the Lord so blessed his ministry. It wasn't Paul who did it. It was the Lord through the Holy Spirit who was doing this thing, calling thousands and thousands to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The thing is, though, that the office of apostle died out in the first century. As he went around teaching and preaching, he didn't go in order to be their pastor and to stay long term. He stays at Ephesus the longest he stays anywhere. He says three years, we think it was exactly probably two months, two years, three months. In the Hebrew mind, you round up. Uh, if, if you're there any part of a year, it counts as the whole year. So somewhere between two and three years he spends in Ephesus. He, he spends longer there and gets to know them better than any other place. But even there, he must leave. Who can follow Paul? Who's going to take over when he leaves? Well, ordinary people. And specifically, we're told what happens in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. See, throughout the Old Testament and the New, the Lord has used elders to serve as under-shepherds, serving under the true shepherd Christ to lead and to guide and protect um, and to teach the flock, his flock. And in our text this morning, we find Paul continuing his journey to Jerusalem as he ends his third missionary journey. And, and along the way, he is delayed providentially, right? I'm sure it's a quote-unquote um, coincidence that they were delayed in a place called Miletus, which is about a two-day's journey from Ephesus. And, and so having this chance... This last time he thought he would ever see the Ephesian church, he, he quickly sends one of his traveling companions and says, Go get the elders, go get the elders. That way I can impart to them a little more knowledge before I leave. And so they rush, they come back to Miletus so that uh, Paul may give them one last charge. This is the only sermon recorded in the book of Acts that is directed to Christians alone. All the other ones, we have lots of sermons, we have lots of addresses in the book of Acts, but this is the only one that is not evangelistic in nature. And it's not just to Christians, it is to the leadership of the Ephesian church. God had not left this church without leaders. The apostle had left, and I know that was a sad day. But, but Paul had discipled these elders whom he had converted in his three years of ministry there. And now he calls them to him to give them one last shot, one last um, booster, as it were, to help them in their ministry. You know, um, many universities will put on what's called the last lecture series. Have you ever heard of these? And what they'll do is they'll get their, their best, the best of the best of their faculty. And they'll say, we want you to give a lecture on anything you want and pretend as if this were the last lecture you would ever be able to give, either before your retirement or before you died. What would you say? This is kind of Paul's last lecture to the Ephesian elders. 
It's real clear that he intend, he thinks he will never see them again. He tells them that very explicitly. There's, there's great sadness at the end of our passage. Now, we actually think Paul did see them again. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it seems to indicate that Paul was released after his first imprisonment in Rome and did make his way back there. But we don't know for sure, but certainly he did not expect that to be the case. So what is the content of his last lecture? What is he seeking to impart to these officers, to these elders who are leading the Ephesian church? Well, we see really, we can put it in two categories. The first is he points to his own example. You know, when you disciple someone, you're not just teaching, you're also modeling. And he had modeled for the Ephesian elders for three years how he should and how they should lead the church. So he's going to remind them of his model of what he had done, and then also he's going to give them one final exhortation, one point of instruction of being on their guard. Well, first let's look at Paul's example. Paul's example. The first thing we see is that his was a wholehearted ministry, wholehearted ministry. We see that throughout the text. Um, We see especially in verse, um, let me find it, Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus and to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was in it with his whole heart, his whole life. He was sold out for the Lord. We see this especially also in verses 18 through 19. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You know, Paul didn't live in the burbs, right? He didn't live in the suburbs and just come in occasionally. You know, this wasn't like a Zoom kind of ministry. This was a ministry of incarnation, of living amongst the people. And he even provided for his own needs, lest they think he was there just peddling the Word of God. He worked as a tent maker in the morning and the evening. And in the middle of the day, he would teach in the school of Tyrannus, uh, which is undoubtedly where many of these Ephesian elders had been trained. He points them to his own humility. Now that's hard to do, isn't it? You know, it's hard to say, I am awesome at being humble, right? That's not what he's doing. Uh, This is a very humble man, and God had kept him humble through some very real trials. But he is reminding them of the importance of humility amongst elders, amongst uh, officers of the church. Why is that? Because ministry is one in which we are not pointing people to ourselves, but instead pointing people to Jesus. He wasn't interested in beginning some multi-level marketing thing in which his, you know, he was the name of the website, you know, paulthepostle.com. You know, someone sent me a a link not long ago, and it was this self-proclaimed bishop, and the name of his ministry was Bishop So-and-so. That was his name, .com. And you could go on there, and for $30, you could be appointed a bishop too. I thought, man, I wasted four years of seminary. It would have been a lot easier. I could have come up with 30 bucks. Uh, and I'm not a bishop yet. Maybe we could fix that before next Sunday. You know, so that's not what he's interested in. He's not looking for the money. He's not looking for what he could get out of it. Instead, in his humility, he is concerned about the people around him. 
You know, Paul had every human reason to be prideful, right? I mean, if you, if you look at all that the Lord accomplished through him, it would be so easy for him to say, ha, ha, look what I did. But the Lord had kept him humble. And he'd kept him humble through some hard ways, hadn't he? I know in Bo and Shine's class this morning, we looked at Paul's conversion. Talk about a, a humbling way to become a Christian. But you know, in order to become a Christian, you first have to be humble. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You can't come to Christ and say, I like what you did with me at the cross, and I've got some stuff to bring to you as well. It doesn't work like that. Paul Paul had been kept humble by God through these two additional things he says here in verses 18 and 19, through tears and trials. Through tears and trials. Um... You know, as we talked with the kids about shepherd, it's a dangerous thing to be a shepherd. There are always threats out there that you have to deal with. But you know what hurts the most? When the sheep bite. And certainly Paul had been through that. He says here in two different places that um, he, had, he had tears from the trials and persecutions he did, but also tears as he admonished or warned warned his, uh, the people in Ephesus. Um, sometimes it would be tempting as an elder, as a pastor, as a deacon, as a Sunday school teacher, to want to be the Holy Spirit and say, I just need to fix your life. And it just doesn't work like that. And you cry along with and you cry for uh, the people under your care. You mourn with those who mourn. You rejoice with those who rejoice. And sometimes you go from one appointment to the next, and in one you're mourning and the next you're joyful because people are in different places. Paul knew this. The focus was not on him. The focus was on Christ. He was a dedicated man. He wasn't in for the money. Verse 33 tells us that he coveted no one's silver, gold, or clothes. He wasn't doing it out of greed but of love. How do we apply this, though? What is the application? Most of the application this morning is directed especially to those who would serve as officers in our congregation, especially the elders. 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to, be the, uh, to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There are three words that are used interchangeably in the New Testament that refer to the same office. That's pastor, shepherd, that's one, that's one phrase, uh, overseer, and elder. They're used interchangeably in this text, actually. Some of them appear as verbs. And so when you see overseer, think elder. It's good to desire to be an overseer or an elder. But it's important to do it out of humility rather than desire for recognition. Elders are called to lay down their lives for the flock of God just like Jesus did. Not redemptively. Elders can't save anybody. Only Jesus can do that. But as we seek to run the race race well, seeking to finish our call to serve that great shepherd of the sheep, guess what? Because elders will give account one day for your souls. It's a weighty thing. It's a weighty thing. But Paul also reminds them not not just that he had had a, a wholehearted ministry, but also a faithful ministry, a faithful ministry. What do I mean by that? We see this in two parts of our text. Verse 20 How I did not shrink, this is the key word here, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And then verse 26, 27, 
Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Have you ever played paintball? I love paintball. I just, I really, especially shooting other people. Uh, You know, and and we played a lot in youth group. Um, Now, there are two kinds of people or two kinds of players I've found in paintball. The first are those who think they can shrink behind the skinniest pine tree and hide from those who are shooting at them. You know, so you'll have a four-inch pine tree and a a larger person behind it, and they think they're okay. But it's great because it helps the other kind of player, and those are the people who are steadily, carefully making their way to the other base. It's good to have some cannon fodder every once in a while, right? But the victory doesn't come from shrinking behind the pine tree. The victory comes from moving forward, running the race well, even when it's risky. And even when it hurts. You know what hurts the most uh, when you're playing paintball? It's not the bullets, I mean the the paintballs you see coming at you. Because most of the time you know it's coming and there's not a big surprise. It hurts, but not as bad as the ones you don't see. The friendly fire that comes from behind you. That's always a surprise. And that's when you know what kind of words are really in your heart, right? And how, how you're going to respond to that. Well, God had placed a call on Paul's life that he uh, proclaimed the good news and he did not shrink down. He did not soft pedal. He did not ignore his duty. He was faithful in his ministry even when it hurt. Towards the end of his life when he would write First Peter, and, I mean, excuse me, First and Second Timothy, he laments some of the people who had stabbed him in the back in his ministry. There were folks who had been some of his compatriots and his companions in his ministry, and they abandoned him. Right? He is someone who knew the hurt from, from outside and within. He had been through trials, and in all those things he didn't shrink. He faithfully proclaimed the Word of God. What does it mean to be faithful to the call of an elder? Um, In this context, what does it mean to be faithful, right? A lot of times faithfulness is showing up. That's that's part of being, you know, about 90% of service, whether it's service at church or at school or at work, is just being there, right? But especially not hiding behind the culture and wading into the hard things, the things that are inconvenient. It means to teach and proclaim the whole counsel of God, as Paul did, that is God's full revelation uh, in the Word and especially His plan for lost sinners that He might save them through Jesus Christ. Culturally, there is a higher and higher price to serving Christ. This isn't just for the elder. This is not just for the deacon. This is for everyone. Some of you have told me how your um, worker, uh, your, your fellow employees, your coworkers, how they look at you as if you are strange, and the cost that you have to pay sometimes at work for being faithful to the call that God has given you on your life to, to live and work for Him. But we are seeing a great shift in places like Australia and Canada. Uh, there, there has been new legislation in the last year that it is now a hate crime to say in an official teaching position from the pulpit or a Sunday school class that homosexuality is wrong. Uh, one of our MTW missionaries in Australia um, 
we don't support him, but he's, he's actually a relative of mine, though I can't remember how. Uh, he, he actually said that they've been having all these meetings with all their pastors trying to figure out how they're going to navigate this new legislation that's just been passed in Australia. And when you serve as an elder, um, you're liable for what's taught in the church. We're called to be faithful. One of the things that I love is that God has called elders to know the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, and make sure what is preached from this pulpit is the Word of God. So Paul is going to say that he, you know, he's going to point him to his, his, uh, his wholehearted ministry, his faithful ministry, but, but third, his Christ-centered ministry. Paul was not interested in developing a following for himself. He wasn't interested in, in you know, having a big following on TV or sow a seed, send me your money kind of thing. That's not what he's interested in. Verse 21, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He preached the same thing to whomever would hear. He did not change the story. He did not change the content. He might change how he delivered the content, but he was faithful and did not shrink back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. And specifically, this is the center of the gospel of repentance and faith. Repentance means to turn from your sin, to realize that you deserve to go to hell because of the things you've said, thought, and done. That's your preacher. He deserves to go to hell apart from Christ. Realizing that what you have done deserves God's wrath, and as you turn from that in repentance and turn, you don't just turn from something, you turn to something. And that to something is the part of faith, where we trust and rest upon what Christ has done for us at the cross. As I look at my life and say, I'm the reason this thing's a whole mess, and I can't save myself. I need someone beyond myself, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As we turn from sin and turn to God and trust in what Christ has done for us on the cross, that is the central message of the Bible. That is the central message of the gospel. And Paul's desire and his method was to have a Christ-centered ministry where he was always bringing it back to Jesus. There are so many things that the Word of God deals with. It deals with morality. It deals with how we're to live. It deals with how we're to treat our neighbors, how we are to manage our money, those sorts of things. But we must never just focus on those things in isolation from the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember I was serving in um, a ministry overseas once in college and and this guy comes in, and, and he's, he's really excited about this new ministry he's a part of, and I can't remember what they're doing, uh, but he comes up to the director, and he says, hey, I really want you all to partner with this. And he hears him out, and he, he, <laughs> he wasn't a man that knew a lot of tact, and he said, no. And that was just the end of it. Uh, and later, he and I talked, and he said, Parker, what they're doing was good, but you have to be careful any ministry or church that does not focus on Jesus. That's the focus. There's so many blessings of being part of a church, right? There's so many blessings of, of being part of First Pres. You know, but this church doesn't exist just to, because it's a great place to make friends. Great place to make friends. Wonderful. This place doesn't just exist so that we can eat Miss Becky's food on Wednesday nights. As fantastic as that is. Why do we exist? Why do we exist? Well, we get this answer in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His blood. Did you just see that Paul called Jesus God? Did you notice that? Which He obtained with His blood. Jesus is God. but I love seeing it just explicitly put here. Um, why does the church exist? Why do we exist? It's not that we can be a country club or a place of fellowship or, or any of those things. It is because Christ has purchased us with His blood. It is the how and the why of, what we, of our existence. It is why we exist and it is how we exist. We, the how is that He has purchased us. We are made His. The why is now that we will proclaim the good news of Jesus to others. So Paul says, look, focus on Jesus. There's a shift then. So we've seen Paul's model, but he also gives some warning. Some warning. That is to pay attention and to be alert. You know, one of the fun things about um, the Chamuckle Road heading to Pensacola, I love seeing the, the, um, the fire tower. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, when I was a kid, I remember that was like the highlight of every trip I ever... We, I knew how many fire towers between here and the beach and here and there. and he, I just loved those things. And I would love to take two or three hours to climb one of those. That's how long it would take. And, and then to stand up there and to see, to look out. You know, the thing about a fire tower is the person who used to man those things was kind of like a shepherd. You know, he was kind of a shepherd over all those trees. And the goal was to, to watch out for any dangers that would arise. If smoke began to come, he could call in help before it engulfed the whole area. And that's how the elders are meant to be within a congregation too. To serve as like in a fire tower, overwatching, watching over, overseeing those under their care. Paul is going to identify two different threats within the congregation. And the first, oh, excuse me, really three. The first is they must first pay attention to whom? Themselves. Have you ever been on an airplane with your kid and they, they come along and said, in the case of a fire, or, you know, in case of uh, loss of pressurization, forget your two year old kid, <laughs> right? What do they say first? First, put the mask on yourself. They say, why would I do that? I got it. But if you're not in good shape, you can't help the helpless. And that's what he says. He says, pay attention to yourself, lest you become the problem. You know, the, it, most of the time, the temptation is when things are going well. You can get power hungry. You can get me-centered. You can get angry when other folks don't want to do what you want to do. You begin to lack humility because you get so excited and so caught up in what's going on that your heart's no longer soft. There's, there's, there's actually a, a curse you have to watch out for with success. But when things are going badly, the same thing is true then. Or if things are going normal, who is the main concern in my ministry? Right now it's my heart. I deal with my sin more than anybody else's. Why is that? One commentator puts it this way. The elders are to keep a watch on their own lives lest they become a bad example to those whom they shepherd. It is a fact of ministry that the congregations over which we minister hardly ever rise to greater expressions of holiness than that which they see evidence in the lives of those who, who oversee the ministry. 
That's a sobering thought. Elders must be on guard. Officers, deacons must be on guard. Sunday school teachers must be on guard. Mothers and fathers must be on guard. We all must be on guard. Pay attention to your own heart. But then he says, watch out for the external and internal threats of the church. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. The wolves here specifically are referring to false teachers. People who would travel around and move into an area and sound good and flashy, and yet whose doctrine led to death rather than to life. You know, the most dangerous doctrine is the stuff that sounds right, but isn't quite there. When you sight in a rifle, you're dealing with minutes of angle. And the minutes of angle are, you know, if it's off a quarter of a minute of an angle, you know, 10 feet out, there, it's not going to make a big difference. It's really not. But as you go out further and further and further, what begins as a very small thing ends up having a huge impact downrange. And so even if the doctrine is just a little bit off over a long period of time, as it permeates the congregation, it can have very drastic and dreadful consequences. And so the elders must know theology. They must know the Bible so that they can spot error when they see it. Rarely does error come into a church intentionally. Oftentimes nowadays it comes from because we have so many voices around us. We have books in the checkout line at Walmart, right, that are heretical and they're labeled Christian. And so people begin to read these things and then it ends up in a Sunday school class and you're talking about it. And then and the next thing you know, there's, there's this whole idea within a congregation. You have to be on, on guard. It doesn't always begin with nefarious um, intentions. Elders are especially meant to make sure that what is preached in this pulpit is right and good and godly. I've shared this story before, but I once told Sean, I said, you know, I love having elders here. I know that if I were teaching something uh, poorly that that, or you know, against the Word of God, that would be my last sermon. He said, Parker, you wouldn't finish that sermon. Uh, you know, what a, what a great line. Praise God. Um, so they must watch for outside, but they also have to watch inside, internal threats. Verse 30, And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. It's unclear if Paul's talking about the elders themselves or members or both. But both certainly apply. Well, unfortunately, that's the end of the recording that we have for the service. Our power went out on the board uh, there at the end of the service, and so I'm sorry to say that uh, it did not get my conclusion. May the Lord bless you.